And please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at what we read during the scripture reading this morning, verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. You know, last week we saw the importance of taking the filthy clothes of sin and putting them off. We saw some examples of sin that were given, things like sexual immorality and sins of anger that can derail our walk with God and more identify us with a life that is apart from God than a life that is with Him. When I was in seminary, I worked at UPS, and I unloaded about six semis a night, and in the summer, When it's about 100 degrees in the nose of the semi, as you're unloading the boxes, I sweat just a little bit. Uh, As a matter of fact, it looked like at the end of the shift, I dove in a pool and was drenched when I got home. And you know, something that I would do immediately upon getting home by request of my wife was take a shower, take off those dirty clothes take a shower, and what would have been unthinkable is to dry off, clean up, and put those sweaty, nasty, stinky clothes back on. In essence, that's what we're doing as Christians when we go back into the sinful patterns of sin that have characterized our lives before we come to Christ. We're putting back on those rotten, stinky, smelly, sweaty clothes. So the Word of God calls us to change our attire. In fact, the 10th verse told us to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. And then Paul goes about describing what it looks like when we've put on those new clothes. Now, what we want to see this morning is that God has called us and chosen us. So, we as followers of God ought to be choosing to live as God's chosen. Look with me at the 11th verse or 12th verse. The 12th verse says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with five Christian virtues that we're going to be getting into. Now, what the Word of God does is it describes who we are in Christ. And I think as believers, when we realize who we are in Christ, it will change the way we carry ourselves. And really, that's the Word of God's point. You see, the chosen people of God should choose to live lovingly Look again at that 12th verse, and it says, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Five Christian virtues that we are to clothe ourselves with. In other words, once I take off those nasty, dirty clothes of sin, I'm to put these virtues on as clean clothes. Clothes that reflect who I am in Christ, as one who is chosen, as one who is holy, 
And I love that last description as one who is dearly loved by God. Doesn't that move you toward grateful living? A thread that we're going to see throughout the text that we're looking into this morning is the theme of gratitude and association with this. And I believe that being motivated by our gratitude toward God, the fact that He has delivered from these sins and has delivered us to a new way of living, that is such a strong motivation in our lives when we really think about who God is and how I can honor and please Him, not to earn His favor, but as an expression of profound gratitude. That's a great motivator. Now, let's talk about these Christian virtues and unpack what's being said here. We start with compassion. And compassion very simply has with it the idea of caring about another person. As a matter of fact, the Scripture, if we translate this literally talks about the bowels of mercy or the bowels of feeling or the bowels of love. Now, I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be terribly romantic if you went up to your wife and said, I love you with all my bowel. (laughs) Can you imagine if Valentine's Day had a different picture? Gross to us. But in this culture... Think about it. When you feel deeply about something, you feel it in your gut, right? You're moved to compassion and you feel it in your abdominal area. So that's why they called it the bowels of mercy or the bowels of compassion. What it's calling us to is to care about one another, to deeply feel for those around us. And if we are Directed and guided by Jesus Christ, that's what we'll do. We won't be self-centered. It won't be all about me. I will look at other people and I will think about how they might be feeling and I will feel along with them. Our word compassion means to suffer with, our English word. That's the idea. We will feel that compassion toward them. But that compassion isn't us just looking and saying, oh, too bad. I really feel for you. Now, what was I talking about? (laughs) That's not what we do when we have compassion. Compassion moves us to action. And that's what we find as we go on in this text. It goes on to say that we will clothe ourselves with kindness. We live in a society that is becoming less and less kind and more and more coarse. God is telling us that we should stand out as different. And kindness is simply doing an act that seeks to bless another person. It has the idea of trying to benefit them. Not because I will receive something in return. There's not this reciprocal aspect to kindness. It's just reaching out and doing something for another person for the sake of doing something kind and beneficial. That's the idea of kindness. And when we are putting on the clothing that Christ wants us to put on, that's the way we'll conduct ourselves. Notice that each of these 
virtues centers on the way we treat one another. Isn't that amazing? The new clothes that Christ wants us to wear are clothes that are aware of the needs of those around us and that bring us to the place to where we will care for one another within the context of a body of believers. This is a very practical thing that we're being called to. God wants us to connect with one another, to do life together, to care about each other, to be kind to one another, but to do it with humility. In other words, when I do these things of kindness motivated by compassion, I don't come before the church and say, you know, I'm so thankful that I'm the most caring person I know. And I would humbly like to say that I've done these acts of kindness over the course of the week, all to the glory of God, right? We don't have to buy into tootest thou not thine own horn and the same shalt not be tooted. You know, we don't have to go there. As we live these things out, as we follow through on these things, it's to be done with humility. In other words, I take me out of the center. When we looked at the clothes that represent the person who has the old dirty clothes on, it was all me-centered. It was, I want to gratify my flesh. It was, you were a roadblock to me, so I'm angry with you. It was a self-centered approach to life. When we're clothing ourselves in the virtues of Christ, it's others-oriented. And listen, you can't feel compassion or do acts of kindness if you're proud. Only through humility do you pull these things off. You see, if you're proud, you're saying, they need to just get over it. I don't have time to deal with this. If you're proud, it's, why don't people do kind things to me? Nobody does that for me, so I'm not doing it for anybody else. Right? Humility comes and says, I will serve, placing the needs of others above myself. That's the idea of humility. Then, look at the next part of these virtues. In addition to humility, it says gentleness and patience. Now, I think that these two virtues should be taken together. Gentleness carries with it the idea of being meek. In other words, I don't run roughshod over people. I don't impose my will on them. I am completely meek in my approach to them. And sometimes in our society, we confuse the idea of meekness with weakness, and that's not it at all. Weak, uh, weakness is, is self-oriented. Meekness is others-oriented. God wants us to be kind and considerate in the way that we conduct ourselves toward others. And so as I go to help somebody, I'm not going to run roughshod over them Say, I'm here to help. Get out of the way. 
I'll come and I'll say, I'm here to help you. How can I help you? How can I minister to you? We do that with gentleness. Now what about patience? Patience has to often attend gentleness because sometimes when we help people, they don't respond the way we anticipated they would or should. Have you noticed that? When a person is hurting, their initial response to our help won't always be, oh, thank you, I, I've, I've waited so long for somebody to come along and help me in this way. Sometimes they'll say, you know, that's okay, but can you do this too? And patience has to kick in. We have to be patient with people, and we need to show restraint at annoyances. God wants us to be this kind of person. But then, as we come to the 13th verse, we find something else. In addition to these five virtues mentioned in the 12th verse, we see two other virtues that are mentioned, and they are forbearance and forgiveness. Now, forbearance is very much like patience. But when we think about it, forbearance carries it a step further. I'm going to let you in on on just a, a tiny little secret. Pastors can find some people in the church difficult to deal with. And I'm not looking in any direction, okay? (laughs) I'm trying to be careful to look at the ceiling or something. (laughs) Stay in a church long enough and somebody's going to irritate you. In fact, stay in any group of people long enough and somebody is going to annoy you. You approach things differently. Maybe it's their body language. Maybe it's the way they talk. Maybe it's just annoying habits that they have that drive you crazy. I discovered with a previous staff member, they hated the sound of styrofoam. One day I walked into the office and I was playing with my McDonald's teacup with a straw, squeaking the uh, the styrofoam, and I could see him just start to do this. And I said, what? He said, could you please stop that? Wrong thing to tell me. <laughs> but at any rate, those are those things that, that, that annoy us. And understand this, forbearance means we put up with stuff. Some people are just going to be different than you in a way that annoys you. It's not anything they're doing. It's not anything you're doing. In fact... I would submit to you that sometimes God puts those people in our path to teach us patience and forgiveness and forbearance and what it's like to really love. Listen, it's easy to love people who are lovable. It's easy to love people who who, who love you, right? But that person who just drives you crazy... When you come into contact with them, that's a challenge to forbear. That's a challenge to interact with that person. So what the Word of God is calling us to is to forbear some people. 
But then it also has to add this. Forbearance is hard enough. Okay, I'll put up with them. But then it goes on to say, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Okay, that's taking it to a whole different level. You mean I have to forgive this person who opposed a ministry that I presented? Yes. You mean I have to forgive this person who said that unkind thing? Yes. We forgive. And notice the nature of that forgiveness. Whatever grievances you may have. Some of our grievances are going to be real. Somebody did something that was just obnoxious and hurtful. And it wasn't on accident. They did it. That's a grievance. Biblical solution, forgive it. Sometimes people do things unintentionally. To us, they're just an obnoxious person. Forgive them. Forgiveness means that I set aside their offense, that I no longer define them by the offense. When I think of them, the immediate thing that I don't think of is the offense that they perpetrated against me. It is taking that and setting those offenses aside, putting them off and putting on this compassion and kindness and love all of these virtues that are mentioned in this passage. Look at the bar that the Word of God sets for our forgiveness. It says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow. Now that's challenging. Forgive as the Lord forgave me. You know what I, I do when, when I have a hard time forgiving somebody and I'm really aggravated with them? I visualize the mountain of my offenses against God and what he did in forgiving me. And then I look at the offense of this person who has offended me. And there's no comparison between the two. God forgave us unconditionally. He wiped the slate clean because of Jesus Christ. And we're to do the same for one another. That's what God calls us to. In fact, Paul said this to the Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as in Christ God forgave you. Very similar to this text, isn't it? If you want to put on the new clothes, you put off the old clothes of a grudge and you put on the new clothes of forgiveness. But then we come to another part of this text as to how the chosen people of God live lovingly. The context that binds all of these virtues together is love. Verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Listen, the only way I can pull off being compassionate, kind, patient, humble, 
gentle. The only way I can forbear and forgive is within the context of love. And here's the truth about love. Love isn't something that we build up as a feeling. Love is something that is a choice. I like to define love as a decision commitment where I choose to commit myself to love another person, to seek their best interests, to care about what happens to them and want only good for them. That's what love is. And when Paul says in this text that love binds all of these things together in perfect unity, that's like the super glue that holds these Christian virtues together. That's the thread that sews together these new clothes that we're putting on. But here's the truth about love. I need God to produce that kind of love in me. I can't do it. Oh, I love them all right. You know? Isn't that our approach? We'll say the words. The real love comes from the transformative work of God in our lives. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And in the context of that passage, he talks about how we can walk according to the flesh. And he lists all kinds of horrible characteristics that will define our walk if we walk according to the flesh, that old part of us, the old clothes. But then he talks about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And he talks about what is produced by the Spirit of God as He works in our lives. And here's the list. Fruit of the Spirit is, what heads the list? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these attributes sound very much like what He's talking about here in Colossians. So God wants us to put on love, but how do I put on love? By yielding to the ministry of the Spirit of God in my life and watching as He renews my mind and takes away those thoughts of hatred and rejection and replaces them with the work that He does in my life. We become more loving as we depend more on the Spirit of God. So that's what this text wants us to grasp. This is how we will live. Something else we want to see. Not only do the chosen people of God live lovingly, but the chosen people of God live for Christ. When we come to the 15th verse, the Scripture very simply says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now, here it's talking about my relationship within the church. And what it's telling me is, the way I relate to other people within the church body ought to be in the peace of Christ. And when it says in this text, 
to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is talking about something very specific. The word that the NIV translates rule. In the original language, it can be translated arbitrate, umpire. In other words, when I interact with fellow members of the body of Christ, it is the peace of Christ that should trump any other agenda, idea, thought that I have. That's the idea. That should be my ultimate goal, seeking the peace of Christ. So when I look at something and I say, you know what, I don't exactly agree with them on this, but hey, guess what? The peace of Christ is more important than me taking a ride on my hobby horse. So I'll set it aside. The peace of Christ. In other words, committing myself to see that as far as it depends on me, the peace of Christ will rule in my life and in the life of this church. Now, peace. That's such an important attribute for us to grasp. And it should be important to us because it's important to God. Romans talks about the importance of my interaction with other people. And it very simply says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live with or live at peace with everyone. I'm so thankful for the first half of that verse. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you. Some people will not live in peace. They refuse to. They just won't do it. Do you know what we need to do? Uphold our end of the deal to seek peace, to live for peace. But if they refuse to do it, we have no control over that. But something else, James talks about the importance of peace. In James chapter 3, he talks about two approaches. A wisdom that is from this earth, that is fleshly, even demonic. And the wisdom that is from above. Sounds a lot like what we're talking about in the book of Colossians, doesn't it? But what he says is this. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Very much in keeping with what Paul is saying will lead to peace right here in this passage, right? But then look at that 18th verse. To me, this is one of the most powerful parts of this. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You know, as I think back over godly people that I've interacted with, they were peacemakers. They were the ones who would come in and choose their battles. We've all met the person who will escalate anything. If there's a controversy, they run to be in the middle of it. Godly people don't do that. Godly people look and they say, I will sow peace in this situation. And then look at the last part of that 15th verse. 
After this discussion about letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, he goes on with this statement and be thankful. This is, once again, this thread that runs throughout the text that we're looking into. And you know, I've found that grateful people are often very positive people who will pursue peace. The person who's just negative all the time. Well, I just don't think that's good. I don't like it. Not going to like it. It's awful. That kind of person is not a peacemaker. They're a fault finder very often. And they drive people away. The grateful people that I know are looking for ways that they can find good things in other people and be thankful for it. And that puts them in a frame of mind to where they'll be able to let the peace of Christ rule among them. Look at what else we find in verse 16. As the chosen people of God living for Christ, we will let Christ's word dwell in us richly. I love the way that's framed in this text. When it says, let the peace or the word, excuse me, of Christ dwell in you richly. There are two possible interpretations of this text. One possible interpretation is this. As a body of believers, the Word of God should be at home in our church. Listen, one of the reasons that we go verse by verse through the Scripture to draw out of it God's truth is because we want the Word of Christ to dwell richly in this church body. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we do all of the ministries with our Word or God's Word that we do. It's core to us. We don't want to just reference the Scripture once in a while because I have a thought. I want to go deep into God's Word, let it speak to me and transform me. And so that's letting the Word of God dwell in our church family, our church body, richly by featuring the Word of God as something that is a core value and principle of our church. But there's another possible interpretation. Some commentators that I read took it from the corporate level, in other words, how we interact as a church, and brought it down to the individual level. In other words, the Word of God feels at home in my heart and in my life. Now think about this. You go to visit somebody, and four of the rooms where there are very comfortable-looking pieces of furniture, they have a velvet rope across it. You're not allowed in there. And by the way... Before you get into the fridge, ask. Anything with my name on the containers, off limits. The washroom in the back that hasn't been remodeled, that's yours. The newly remodeled, mine. Would you feel at home there? No. 
As you close off that areas of the dwelling place, you're not dwelling there. You're visiting, right? When do you feel at home? Make yourself at home. Put your feet up on the coffee table. My house is your house. Do whatever you want. That's when we feel at home. In some believers' lives, they say, okay, I'll read the Word, but this area of my life's off limits. I like to keep it for myself. So the Word of God isn't going to dwell in that area. Don't meddle. That's mine. It won't work. You can't grow. You can't become mature when you rope off parts of your life to the Word of God. So as followers of God, letting the Word dwell in us richly is an important decision corporately and individually. But then it takes a surprising twist in the 16th verse. The Word of God is to dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another. Okay, that's what we're to do with the Word of God, teach it. Admonishing very simply means that we advise someone how the Word of God can apply to their life. But then it's the way this is done. And as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. Now, wait a minute. The music that we sing, those are the preliminaries in the service until we get to the real part where the Scripture is spoken. Right? Couldn't be further from the truth. The Word of God expressed in music and our expression of the Word of God back to God as we praise Him is a core and essential part of our worship service. And we should never view it as a preliminary until we get to the part where the pastor preaches. I have a vested interest in the preaching. And I'm telling you that the music is as important or more important than the preaching. When we choose biblically founded songs, God wants us to make that kind of choice. God wants us to live in that way. Then we come to the last part of this text. Point C is verse 17. Christ's name should be honored by our words and our deeds. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then here's that thought of gratitude again. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know, when I think about my words and my deeds and that they are to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, what, what does the Scripture mean when it says that? Doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus means He would sign His name to it in approval. That's the idea. So that story, that joke, that bit of gossip that I'm about to share, would Jesus sign His name to that? That scowl that I give the guy that just cut me off in traffic and the gesture that I'm thinking about bringing up in response, would Christ sign his name to that? 
the movie or television show that I'm watching that has inappropriate behavior, would I sit down with the elder board and watch that with them? Would Christ sign his name off on that? Do you get where this is going? When we do things in the name of Jesus Christ, we are doing it, one, with his approval, but two, understanding that what I do represents him. You see, the moment that I call myself a Christian, I am identifying myself as an official representative of the name of Christ. So what I do and what I say reflects on him and on the community of believers that I'm a part of. And that's a huge responsibility. God wants us to behave in such a way that we reflect well on who Jesus is. And then again, this last part, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What's your chief motivation for doing it all in the name of Jesus? Because you are so grateful for what he has done for you. I am more motivated, and I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. I am more motivated by gratitude than by fear. Gratitude elicits a feeling of love, respect, There are no boundaries to what I'm willing to do for that person that I am grateful to. There is a depth of love and appreciation for that person that I'm grateful to. And that's what we find here. So often in Christian ministry, we beat people up and say, you know, hey, this is is what you need to do, and if you don't do it, then then bad things are going to happen to you. And so they go and they respond, and initially, I don't want the bad things to happen. But that plays out. How did Paul approach it in this passage? You're holy, you're dearly loved by God. Be grateful. And let your gratitude to Him transform your heart and your mind so that you live for Him. That's what God calls us to. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. May we be people who put on all of the things that this text calls us to. The Christian virtues, the forbearance, the forgiveness, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and yes, even the name of Christ. May those be reflected in our lives as followers And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.